Hello, welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. This week, we're going to talk about the Proud Boys, the Brazilian military, Trump's impeachment, and a twofer see you in hell involving some fascists from Germany and Hungary. Continuing fallout from the Proud Boys being declared a terrorist organization by the government of Canada, we got a lot of reports that Proud Boy branches in that country are being disbanded, or at least, you know, officially going underground, not existing openly as they had before. This ruling by the government of Canada puts the Proud Boys in the same category as the base or Atomwaffen, uh, which are, you know, more straightforwardly militia terrorist organizations. Uh, this is especially interesting because the Proud Boys have historically acted a lot more like a sort of political movement. You know, they have rallies, they have branches, they have bylaws, they have things like that. They're trying to actually be a something like a mass movement, uh, whereas Base and Atomwaffen were much more like, you know, militia cells, that sort of thing. It's going to be very interesting to see how this trickles into the United States, especially now that the Trump administration is over. We have reports from South America regarding a, well, a potential military coup that didn't happen uh, in Brazil a couple of years ago. Uh, this report is coming from Pagina Doce, um, which translates as page 12. It's an Argentine newspaper. Uh, this is a report that a military leader from Brazil uh, has admitted that there were coup plans within the military uh, in case former President Lula was released from prison uh, when he was imprisoned all the way back in 2018. Now, for those of you who don't remember or for those of you who need a fresher, uh, the story is that Lula had been succeeded by his you know, appointed successor, a woman named Dilma Rousseff who was then ousted in what Brazilians called a, quote, parliamentary coup. Uh, this is the sort of thing that the, you know, the amendment to the Constitution that allows the cabinet to oust the president. It's that sort of thing. Uh, she was removed and Lula was then imprisoned also uh, as a result of investigations pertaining to a massive corruption scandal in Brazil, uh, which is known as Operation Car Wash. Uh, now, the corruption scandal is real, like the corruption was really happening, but also the right wing in the Brazilian government and, you know, Brazilian political parties used it as an opportunity for a major power grab. Rousseff was uh, removed from the presidency and was replaced uh, by a man named Temer, who was an extremely right wing figure um, in Brazilian politics already. And this sort of paved the way for the eventual election of current Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, because... Uh, both Lula and Rousseff were uh, prevented from running for office uh, in that particular election, despite the fact that they are, you know, incredibly popular political figures um, because of these investigations. Now, these allegations by a currently serving military official, by the leader of Brazilians military, indicates that the military considered as late as 2018, 2019, they thought that it might be useful for the military to uh, intervene in politics to prevent Lula's return to the political sphere. Now, that is terrifying, partly because Brazil is an incredibly powerful and very large country, and the military being in charge of them is horrifying, but also because it's a reminder that once military coups are possible, once they, once they become thinkable in a country, it's very, very difficult to get that particular cat back in the bag. Uh, once military governments, once the overthrow of democratic governments becomes something that people are used to, and it is in Brazil, unfortunately, given the country's history, uh, even after a generation or so, 
it just is a lot easier <laughs> for that kind of thing to transpire. And if you're looking at these events, well, obviously, if you're looking at these events from the perspective of people in Brazil or people in the rest of South America, this is very troubling because it indicates that the return to democracy that we saw in the mid 1980s, early 1990s throughout most of the region is a little bit more tenuous than one might wish. Uh, but if you're looking at it from the perspective of more, you know, continually functioning democracies such as the United States, uh, it also indicates that, you know, once these things are on the table, once the military seriously considers, like really seriously considers intervening in politics in this way, it's very difficult to get that idea off the table. So I'm recording this February 11th, the final day of the prosecution in Trump's second uh, impeachment removal trial in the United States Senate. And honestly, my, my commentary, my perspective on it is that it has been surprisingly good. Um, the people in charge of presenting this case to the United States Senate that Donald Trump should be prevented from holding federal office ever again, which is, you know, the, the big possible consequence of this, in addition to, you know, I guess potentially jail time, something like that. Um, they're actually taking the most radical of their possible positions. Uh, they're openly arguing in the United States Senate that Donald Trump intentionally and knowingly tried to get an armed mob of his supporters into the chambers of Congress to commit political violence in order to prevent the election of his political opponent. Now, that shouldn't be a controversial statement, especially to anybody listening to this. Uh, it's been very transparently the truth the whole time. But think about what they could have argued. You know, they could have just said like, oh, you know, he was interfering in the election by, you know, arguing that it was illegitimate. Or like, oh, you know, he just like let his supporters do this sort of thing. No, they are charging him with trying to stage a coup in the United States. They're not using the word coup. They're using the word insurrection, uh, which is, I think, a little bit punch pulling. Um, but, you know, that also comes from the particular language that the United States Constitution uses to define these particular kinds of activities. Um, but yeah, they're. they're they're charging the former president with attempting to stage a coup, and they're trying to invite fellow congresspersons to think seriously about what would have happened if just like a few different things had happened back then on January 6th. Uh, a lot of their prosecutorial activity has been showing just like very well presented timelines of what was going on on January 6th with, with, with some very informative video and audio. Uh, if you haven't been paying attention, I highly recommend to go back and at least watch some of the highlights of this kinds of footage. Uh, they've put together a really compelling story uh, that indicates things, again, that people who have been paying attention have known the whole time. We were minutes or seconds away from right-wing militia people from 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 right-wing protesters uh, a right-wing mob kidnapping and murdering uh members of congress or vice president mike pence it, it was a very very close thing uh again we're talking minutes seconds panes of glass chairs propped up against doors these were the things that prevented that level of political violence from occurring in the united states just over a month ago and despite the fact that the Biden administration is now in office and, you know, things are, quote, back to normal, um, as normal is defined within the United States political system, we're going to have to sit with this one for a while. Because, again, when this sort of stuff becomes normal, when it becomes realizable, it doesn't really go away. 
Now, one of the other wonderful things that the prosecution has been doing during this trial is that they've been consciously drawing the connection uh, between the activity in the federal capital and activity in state capitals throughout the entirety of Trump's presidency, but but coming to a real head in 2020 uh, during these sort of like anti-COVID, reopen the economy type shit protests. Uh, they drew specific clear parallels between mobilizations and threats made against the governor of Michigan, uh, you know, which I've talked about several times on this podcast, uh, that there were right-wing militias whose plan was to invade the capital of Michigan, kidnap the governor, take her to Wisconsin, and try her and then execute her in a fascist camp. Now, they're literally saying this on the floor of the United States Senate, and frankly, I'm surprised. Like, they're, they're taking this about as seriously as you possibly could. It's, it's, it's actually quite encouraging. Obviously, we know that Donald Trump is almost certainly not going to be convicted by the United States Senate, but that's particularly telling because it means that the sitting senators, the Republicans in that chamber, have been presented with extremely compelling evidence that their supporters had shown up on January 6th in order to kill them and they're still not going to convict this guy. Now, if that isn't an indicator of far-right realignment of the power of this ideology and its movement, like I don't know what possibly could be. This is the best evidence we have that the movement and ideology behind the January 6th coup attempt is not going away. It is the powerful hegemonic force on the right wing today in the United States. The GOP mainstream is afraid of it and moving in its direction. Right, for this week's See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent fascists throughout history, we got an important twofer. The first comes from Hungary, a supposedly reluctant collaborator with the Nazi regime, uh, a man named Miklos Horthy. Uh, Horthy was an Austro-Hungarian naval admiral, uh, and of course, after the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Horthy, a uh, Hungarian national, uh, remained in Hungary, which no longer had any sea border, uh, but he remained an admiral um, and was a prominent nationalist leader and politician before World War II. Uh, by World War II, he becomes the regent of Hungary, reigning in the place of the monarch, and is a big nationalist politician in his own right. You know, he's, he's a pretty standard pre-World War II nationalist right-wing figure in Eastern Europe. He hates communists. He's an anti-Semite. He works with fascists up until the point that he doesn't need them anymore, and then he liquidates or excludes them from his political coalition. However, of course, Hungary is also adjacent to a bunch of territory that Nazi Germany, also existent at exactly the same time, was extremely interested in. And so Horthy, being a, you know, sort of political strategist on the right wing, works with Hitler, but you know, attempts to maintain some level of independence against him. Um, there's some evidence that Horthy, you know, at least wasn't particularly enthusiastic about participating in the Holocaust, uh, although he was extremely enthusiastic about stopping communism and killing communists and helped, helped with that pretty extensively. Um, this makes Horthy a perfect picture of the, quote, reluctant collaborator, uh, the sort of person who, uh, after the fall of the Nazi regime, you know, several decades later, say, today uh, can be sort of rehabilitated in his national image. Now, this is despite the fact that, of course, as the Soviet Union during World War II is getting closer and closer 
to Germany and moving through Eastern Europe, uh, the Nazis basically say like, hey, tough shit, um, you're going to work with us. Um, the Nazis take over Hungary as the Soviets advance and proceed to enact Holocaust practices throughout the country. And Horthy doesn't stop it. You know, he doesn't stand up against this sort of shit. He's a collaborator. You know, maybe he isn't a true believer in the ideology of the Holocaust, but he is a true believer in anti-Semitism uh, and, you know, doesn't take particular umbrage to it. Uh, after World War II, uh, after the defeat of Hungary by the Soviet Union, he is arrested and held by the Allies and uh, appears a lot in trials in Nuremberg, but as a witness, uh, he is not tried. Uh, he was never able to return to Hungary because it was, of course, taken over by the very communists who he had spent his entire life trying to kill and stop. Uh, so he goes to Portugal. Hey, why might he have gone to Portugal? It was because Portugal was led by a right-wing dictatorship until the 1970s. So he goes to exile in Portugal, uh, where he dies the 9th of February, 1957. Uh, this makes him one of the only Axis leaders to survive World War II, and he's a, he's a really interesting figure in this capacity. The other person that we're going to talk about this week is someone a little bit better known in the United States, especially if, uh, like me, when you were younger, you watched a lot of the History Channel. Uh, this person is named Joseph Mengele. Uh, Mengele was a, a literal mad scientist, a, a medical doctor, an anthropologist uh, in Nazi Germany. Uh, he joined the Nazi party and indeed the SS very early on uh, because he was interested in taking the opportunity offered by their contempt for human life and specifically for the lives of Jewish people and Slavic people and um, people with medical conditions that the Nazis reviled or looked down on. He was stationed in the Auschwitz extermination labor camp, um, specifically in uh, the uh, Birkenau part of it, uh, and was especially interested in experimenting on twins. Uh, this was a particular interest, not just of his, uh, but of the Nazi party, because experimenting on twins, uh, they thought, you know, this would shore up their claims that heredity is the primary factor in uh, a human's intelligence, resilience, any, any and all of their capacities, not their like actual lived experience. Uh, so he typically tried to single out any identical twins uh, that arrived at the camp and performed horribly disgusting experiments upon them uh, that, that, that don't bear mentioning. Unfortunately, uh, as the Soviets approached uh, the camp at which he worked, he escaped uh, and moved to a different camp, which the United States liberated. So the United States military captures Mengele, but he uses a fake ID and doesn't dress as an SS officer. He dresses as a Wehrmacht officer, as a military officer. Uh, so the United States military fails to ID him as a high-priority prisoner. Mengele uses this confusion to arrange for his eventual escape to, to Argentina in uh, 1949, uh, where he successfully blends in as a small-time businessman of German descent, uh, working with the network of other German expatriates that existed in South America in order to make himself, you know, a relatively successful life after his horrible, horrible crimes. He eventually starts using his own name again and even returns to Germany for a vacation in 1956. However, in the wake of the successful capture and, you know, identification and capture of Adolf Eichmann in Argentina by the Israeli military, uh, he realizes that he has to go underground more seriously again and uh, relocates again to Brazil in 1960. 
Uh, he spends the rest of his life uh, in various expatriate networks, living a relatively normal and disgustingly privileged life um, until he drowns. Uh, he got a stroke while he was swimming. So he drowned on the 7th of September, 1979. Unfortunately, um, this means that he never answered for his crimes. He was never successfully tried. Uh, his body even uh, was not buried under his name. It was only formally identified in 1985 uh, after it was exhumed uh, and a DNA test confirmed uh, in 1992 that it was indeed him. So unfortunately, Mengele is uh, one of the Nazis who did get away. But we can at least celebrate the fact that he is now gone. So Horthy and Mengele, we'll see you both in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm still Craig Johnson, and I actually missed it uh, last week. Uh, was the yearly anniversary of this podcast. So if you have been finding it useful or interesting, uh, share it with friends, family, and comrades. I'd like to thank Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. And I'll talk to you next week. Bye.